And Father, we are so thankful because of the work of Christ on the cross that we can say, it is well with my soul. I pray that is the heart of every person here this morning. Bless us now as we open up your word, we pray in Jesus' name. And Carol said, Amen. Amen. <laughs> you are welcome, Carol. <laughs> Open up your Bibles to the book of Joshua. We continue our study in this wonderful book. The theme is Enter In. The connection with modern day, since this is Old Testament many centuries ago, and we are not Israel, although we are the people of God, and there are connections there. The, the main connection is that as Israel was called to possess their possessions, to receive the promised land, hundreds of, promised hundreds of years before, so we as believers must possess our possessions. We must, through spiritual battle, gain the promises that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. And so there are many uh, analogies between the fighting of the Israelites and the fighting of the believer. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but we do fight. It is spiritual warfare, and there are spiritual blessings to be won. So after the great victory of chapter 6, in which the walls of Jericho fell down, through this humanly ridiculous approach and strategy of merely marching around the walls and playing some trumpets and yelling at the appointed time. I say after the great victory of chapter 6 comes the embarrassing defeat of chapter 7. Look at the first word of chapter 7. But the Israelites were unfaithful with regard to the devoted thing. That is, there were certain things that they would get, the spoil, so to speak, of the city of Jericho belonged to Jehovah, and yet Israel sinned with regard to these things. Now, we're told something that is not revealed until later in the chapter. It's as though the writer wanted you to get the theme of the chapter before we went through the specifics. He tells us that Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took, stole some of the devoted things. So the Lord's anger, or you might substitute the word wrath, the Lord's wrath burned against Israel. So the Lord's anger in verse 1, this mention of the Lord's wrath, sets the scene for the entire chapter. The reality of his wrath and the reason for his wrath have already been given. But let's see how it happened. As though we didn't know what was going to take place. Here's the rest of the story. Verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel. So it's about 15 miles away from Jericho uh, in the hill country and elevated, situated at about 1,700 feet above sea level. Now they've had quite a climb because when you are in Jericho, you're right down in that lower basin that is close to the Dead Sea, the lowest place on the earth. And now they're marching up to this city 
of Ai. Go up and spy out the region, Joshua said. So the men went up and spied out Ai. Verse 6. Uh, verse 3, excuse me. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand of the men to take it. Don't weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. If Jericho had 15,000, uh, then this place might have had a thousand or so, just guessing, but it was small. So about 3,000 went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. And at this, the hearts of the Israelites melted in fear and became like water. The army marched up the hill with confidence and came down in a panic, leaving 36 comrades dead. And now the tables have been switched. For we have read before in chapter 2 and chapter 5 that the people of the land were melting before the Israelites because of fear. The last time that was mentioned is chapter 5 verse 1. And now tables are turned for the Israelites are filled with fear. And the sinful action of one man brings down the defeat of a whole army. The first thing I want you to know is this idea of humiliation. That's how the chapter starts out. If we skip over the very first verse, there is great humiliation because of sin. You've got the battle being lost. For sin indeed brings you down. Now, some people have guess that maybe Joshua didn't pray like he should have. Maybe he went into the battle without consulting God. Maybe he went forward with self-confidence. Maybe he reduced his army because of arrogance. Maybe they forgot to take the ark, which is representative of the presence of God. And all of those are good questions. The scripture don't, doesn't tell us whether they did these things or they didn't. It doesn't tell us that they did, but that doesn't mean that they didn't. What it does tell us is that they lost because of sin. Whatever caused the army to fail and bring about God's anger and wrath was not so much the size of the army, but it was sin in the camp. Sin among the people of God. That's the problem. And so, defeated and shocked, wholly unexpected, they are now perplexed. And the Bible tells us that they go to prayer. Verse 6, Joshua tears his clothes and face down to the ground, which is the position of humiliation. They would throw ashes on their head as well. Joshua was before the ark of the Lord and he remained there until evening. That's an interesting statement. And the elders of Israel did the same thing. And they sprinkled dust on their heads. So here they are humiliated before God and praying. Asking God, what went wrong? Verse 7. Joshua says, Sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? 
If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Hey, doesn't that sound like Israel when they came out of Egypt and were wandering to the wilderness? Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say? Now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, the Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. And then what then will you do for your own great name? I think Joshua's complaints are not totally out of order because he didn't know the problem. In fact, he was banking on the promises, like in chapter 1. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, God said, I will give you every place where you set your foot, uh, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the great Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life, and as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Those were the promises they were banking on. So it's understandable that Joshua might wonder, what is going on? By the way, complaining to God in prayer is not the same thing as complaining about God outside of prayer. If you want to complain, do it to the Lord. Don't complain to other people who don't have the answers. That's what Israel did. Joshua is bringing his concerns to God. Just like the prophet Hosea did. And other prophets who have gone before. By the way, this is the first and only military defeat that Israel will experience in the land. As they are entering in to occupy it. This is despair on Joshua's part. It is perplexity, not unbelief. He's concerned about the honor of the nation. And he's concerned about the honor of Jehovah's name, as he mentions in verse 9. And the leaders and Joshua are on their faces until the evening sacrifice. That's interesting. God let them pray for a long time before he told them what was wrong. Have you ever prayed and asked for an answer and it didn't come immediately? Well, like every time, <laughs> right? I don't have all the answers, but let's put this into the equation. Sometimes God is going to say, it's not time to pray, it's time to act. Here's the second a big movement in this chapter. We'll call this communication. We go from humiliation to communication. That is, God is going to reveal the cause, the sinful cause. He's going to explain why they were defeated. And so he says in verse 10, the Lord says to Joshua, stand up, what are you doing down on your face? It's time to act. Israel has sinned. Now let me stop right there for a moment and, and say, wait a minute. I thought verse 1 said that Achan had sinned. It did. But verse 1 also says the Israelites were unfaithful. And now in verse 11, Israel has sinned. There is corporate solidarity in sin. The sin of one man is attributed to the entire nation. 
when Ezra the scribe fell on his face to pray in Ezra chapter 9. He said, oh my God, I'm too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached the heavens. And Ezra was not the cause, but he was part of the nation and he sinned. Or how about Nehemiah 1.6? When the walls of Jerusalem had been run down and people came to tell Nehemiah that the the whole city was in a state of disrepair, he wept. And then he said, I confess the sins of we Israelites, including myself and my father's house against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. You see, God's people in the Old Testament lived as one nation. Together they were blessed and together they were chastened. God's people in the New Testament are one body. And together we are blessed. And together we are chastened. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. You might complain about this. But you would do better to fear because we are connected. Isn't it true if a father of a family, let's just take the idea of being a drunkard, isn't it true that his sin affects the whole family? But in this case, we've joined in the sin. Isn't it true that one man, Adam, sinned for the entire human race and you and I sinned in Adam? Yes, it is. And when this church is having hard times, I often hear people say to me, Pastor, your church is going through a rough time. And they're a member. And I say, no, our church, we're in this together. Or are we? (laughs) That's why people don't like to join churches. One of the reasons. That's why people don't like to get married. There's a responsibility and accountability. And what happens to one happens to the other. And I want to be ready to bolt if things get bad. Not biblical. You might complain, but you would do better to fear. For this is the spiritual economy that God has set up. John Donne, the English poet, in his famous poem, said, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a cloud be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. If a piece of ground goes from the continent, the continent is lost. Any man's death diminishes me because I am part of every man, he said. So therefore, never send and ask, who does the death toll ring for? For it rings for me. You're part of this church. I hope you are. The blessings of being part of the community of God are wonderful. But there are some responsibilities, right? And that's what happened. One man's sin turned away the presence of God from the whole nation. Never underestimate the amount of damage one person can do to his family, to his faith community, when living outside of the word of God. Never underestimate your impact 
your negative impact, when you live outside of the will of God, you never sin unto yourself. Others pay the price as well. And so God gives a warning in prayer. And the warning is simply this. If you don't take care of the problem, well, he, he mentions in verse 11 that someone has taken the devoted things. They've stolen from God. They've lied about it. And they put the sacred things with their own possessions. By the way, some of the devoted things, some of the sacred things were to be burned. And some of them were to be put into the Lord's treasury. And Achan took one or several things from each category. But he stole from God. Verse 12, that is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies, their sin in the camp. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. They've embraced the, the thing that should have been destroyed. Don't love the world. Don't love the things in the world. For everyone who loves the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. God doesn't come from the Father, it's from the world. And the world passes away, and everyone that embraces the world. Love the devoted thing, you're destroyed with it. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. So in verse 12, the Lord warns, I will not be with you anymore. Unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Boy, you lose the presence of God and you've lost everything. This is kind of the pinnacle of the chapter, the high point. Nothing is more crucial than the presence of Yahweh. Nothing should disturb us more than, than to think that we've lost his presence. We're not playing church here. We're not going through religion here. We're meeting with God. We're God's people trying to do God's will. And if God is gone, shut the doors. Remember when Moses said, Lord, if you don't go up with us, I'm not going. Sin is a serious thing because it separates us from the presence of God. Your sin. My sin, our sin. So then we go to the third step, which I call investigation. And this is where there is the discovery, the uncovery, uh, uncovering of the sinner. So verse 13, though constant. Consecrate the people, the Lord says. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord says, the God of Israel. There are devoted things among you, and you cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. And in the morning, I want you to present yourself. So here's the investigation. Imagine Joshua going through <clears throat> the camp that night and making the announcement, in the morning there's going to be a solemn assembly Someone has taken the things devoted to destruction. Therefore, we all will be destroyed until we find these things. And tomorrow in the morning, God's going to put his finger on the sinner. What kind of sleep do you think Achan had that night? The 
process is pretty methodical, isn't it? We're going to go by tribe and then by clan. It's a narrowing down. So you've got the nation of Israel with 12 tribes. Now we're going to take one of the 12 tribes and from that one of the many clans and from one of the many clans one of the several families and then from one of the several several families we're going to choose one person i don't know how god did it it might have been the ephod that the high priest was wearing it might have been merely the casting of lots governed by god but whoever is caught verse 15 with a devoted thing will be destroyed by fire so early the next morning the investigation goes on. Everyone presents themselves before the Lord, and the tribe of Judah is chosen, verse 16. And then the clan of Judah, all the clans come forward, and the clan of the Zerahites are chosen. And then that clan comes up with their several families, and the family of Zimri is chosen. By the way, Zimri's not here. He already died. Remember the old generation was gone? But his family is. And Joshua had the family of Zimri come forward man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, who wasn't there either, the son of Zimri, probably his grandfather, the son of Zerah, that's the clan, the tribe of Judah, he was chosen. Where would you go to hide from God? Any idea? <laughs> if I go to the heavens, you are there. If I go to the depths of the sea, you are there. If I, or the depths, you are there. If I uh, fly on the wings of the morning to the farthest part of the earth, there you are as will. Well, you cannot hide from God. Jeremiah 17, I the Lord search the heart, I examine the mind to reward every person according to their conduct and according to their deeds. Can any hide in a secret place where I cannot see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth? And in Hebrews 4, verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is naked and open laid bare and exposed before the eyes of him with whom we have to do, the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You cannot hide from God. By the way, verse 15 calls this sin in the NIV outrageous. This is an outrageous I don't think we often view our sin as outrageous. All people make mistakes, right? I'm human. I, I temporarily, temporarily was out of my mind for a period of time. Well, all sin is due to insanity, at least spiritual insanity. We come up with all the reasons to declare that we are victims, and God says this is an outrageous thing that has been done. So when Achan is chosen, look at verse 19. Give God the glory. That's an interesting statement. It's, it's actually like a, a special oath. 
give God the glory. In other words, you have robbed God of glory. And right now, God is being blamed for the loss at Ai. I want you to take responsibility, Achan, and give God glory, telling everyone he's not to blame for what is just about to happen. It's a very interesting verse in David's confession of Psalm 51. Do you remember this verse? This is 51.4, where David said, against you, you only have I sinned. And right at that point, if I had been there, I might have said, David, <coughs> you sinned against Bathsheba. You killed her husband Uriah. Other people in the army were, what do you mean you only sinned against God? What he means is, that's the first offense. It's against the holy God. Your sin is against God. But David said, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you judge or speak, and you are righteous when you condemn. In other words, the judgment that is going to happen is justified because I'm the sinner. And did you know in Revelation, at the last judgment, God will be, give people a chance to give God glory by confessing their sins and they will not give him the glory because they will not own their sin. That's America today. Wow. We're robbing God of glory and we can't keep doing it. Give God the glory. Let people know he isn't to be blamed for this defeat nor is he to be blamed for the punishment about to come. We acknowledge the sin is our fault. So tell us, Joshua said to Achan, verse 19, tell us, son, what have you done? And this is amazing, these next few verses. Verse 20, Achan replied, it's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylon... 200 shekels, about a pound and a quarter of silver. A bar of gold weighing 50 shekels or about five pounds. That's substantial. I coveted them and I took them and I hid them in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now I need to pause there because this is so amazing. Here's a clear description of the conception and birth of sin, which has four or five parts to it. The first part is, I see. That's the occasion. You and I are tempted all the time to sin, multiple occasions to sin, and that's why we pray, lead us not into temptation. Not that God would lead us into it, but when we're in it, let us not fall to it. Delivers from the evil one. It's not a sin to be tempted. We live in an evil world and we're going to have many occasions to sin. I saw the garment. He didn't have to take it. But here's step number two. I want it. He uses the word covet. I desire it. That's the genesis of sin. Sin is now taken hold. That's like conception. I take it. That's the act of sin. And then there, there might be another step. I hide it. 
That's exactly what Achan did. But step number four is this. I die. Because sin destroys. That's the result of sin. The wages of sin is death. Death, sin kills you. And that's why God hates it so much. It goes against his character and it goes against your well-being. And you and I might say we can allow a little sin in the camp. After all, it's hidden underneath our tents. Not a big deal. There's a whole lot of gold and silver left over. God has his share. I just want a little for me. It's going to kill you. The very thing he took, he could never enjoy. Because it didn't belong to him. I sin. By the way, if you go to Genesis chapter 3, you've got these same steps. Genesis chapter 3, it's on the screen. This is Eve giving in to temptation. I saw the fruit, and it looked good. It was desirable. And I took the fruit. And what was the next step? They tried to hide from God. And then all mankind died. We died. Not immediately, physically, but spiritually they died. They were separated from God. Or how about this? From 2 Samuel 11, here's King David now walking on the roof of his house when kings should be out to war, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. She's beautiful, and he desires her. David's weakness. Multiple wives. And he sends someone to find out about her, and the guy comes back and says, David... She's married. Now it's a servant, so he can't say what he really wants to say, but he should have said something like, David, you idiot. She's a married woman. You can have any woman you want who's not married, but not this one. And David says, go fetch her for me. And he hides it for a year. And his son dies. He kills Uriah to hide up the lie. To cover up the lie. And then other members in fa David's family die. By, by the way, that's probably worse, isn't it? To watch your baby die and then your son die and your family all messed up. And you live to see it. The wages of sin is death. Or how about this? Last one. This is James chapter 1. Remember this, that God never tempts you to sin. We live in a broken, sinful world. Temptation comes naturally because we still have sin in us. We're not perfect. So no one can say when I'm tempted, God is tempting me to sin. He doesn't do that. He's perfect. How then are we tempted? There is within us an evil nature. When we are tempted by evil, there is within us a traitor who wants to give in. And that desire is like conception. And then it gives forth, uh, the, the sin is, is born, as it were. Sin, after it is conceived, gives birth to death. And there are the same steps throughout the Old Testament to the New Testament, and the same steps that you and I go through. 
Achan said, I sinned. By the way, he joins the great confessions made by those who were never forgiven and said, I sinned. Did you ever see these in the Bible? Pharaoh said to Moses, I've sinned. Balaam said, I've sinned. King Saul said, I've sinned. Judas said, I've sinned. And none of them really wanted to repent. It's not enough to say the words. And it's too late for Achan. I've sinned. And we come now to the last movement, the eradication of the sin. That is the destruction of the one who took the things devoted to destruction. Warren Wiersbe says at the beginning of every new period in Bible history, God often reveals his wrath in dramatic ways. Like at the opening of the tabernacle, Nadab and Abihu died for offering strange fire, Leviticus 10. In finding a new place for the ark, 2 Samuel 6, Uzzah died when he put forth his hand to steady it. And in Acts chapter 5, with a new church born after Pentecost, Ananias and Sapphira died for lying to God. There is this clear demonstration that God is a God of justice. And it's really in his mercy that he destroys sin or else all of us would be destroyed. And so the Bible tells us they went out to the valley of Achor. That might have been a new name that they gave to it that day. Verse 25, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you. The word achor means trouble. Then all Israel stoned him. Probably representatives from all the tribes. His sin affected everyone. Everyone was involved in the punishment. And it was his family, too. They were probably accessories to the sin. After all, it was buried right in the floor of their tent where they lived. The Bible tells us after they were stoned, they were burned, verse 25. And over Achan, they heaped a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Eleven times in the book of Joshua, which means the writer was a contemporary. And there's another pile of rocks which remains to this day. You see, you could go to Gilgal and see a pile of rocks. There's two piles. One is a pile of rocks. That shows a miracle that God did on behalf of his people. And another, if you go to the Valley of Achor, is a pile of rocks that marks the wrath of God against sin. And we need both of those reminders as we walk with God. This doesn't make a lot of sense to us because our understanding of sin is incredibly weak. And this picture of God's wrath seems too great punishment doesn't fit the crime but it does you and i think breaking god's command is not really a big deal doesn't bother us that much to sin but it is a big deal because sin caused christ to go to the cross but let me just give you a neat picture of mercy 
God wants to destroy us. He doesn't want us to remain comfortable in our sin. That's why he searches us out, and that's why he points the sin out, and that's why he wants us to rip the sin out of our life and destroy it without mercy so that he can restore us. But in the book of Hosea, it says, In the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, I will bring back the vineyards and make a door of hope. In other words, that the very place where punishment came to Israel will be a place where the door of opportunity and hope comes to Israel. That's Hosea chapter 2, 14 and 15. And by the way, that sounds a whole lot like the cross, where the punishment of man's sin came upon our Savior. That cross is the door of hope. And all who believe are forgiven forever. We needed this chapter in the book of Joshua. And we need to see this chapter in our own lives. Lest we become overconfident and presume that we can sin and get away with it. It's the book of Numbers that tells us, be sure your sin will find you out. Praise God for the cross. Let's pray. Lord, this is an awesome portion of scripture and we bow before it in conviction and broken. We too are often like Achan, thinking that we can sin and get away with it when your clear command tells us not to. But you have a way by your spirit to find us out, to search us. Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, O Savior. Know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be some wicked way in me. Cleanse me from every sin and set me free. And may the stones of Achor remind me that you are a holy God. And the stones of Gilgal remind me that you are a merciful God. Behold the goodness and the severity of God. Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, may they believe upon you today and find forgiveness. And for those of us who are believers, Lord, I pray that we will on a regular basis open our hearts to you and have your cleansing work done in our soul that we might walk in the shadow of the cross forgiven because of the mercy of Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?